Take your Bibles and open them up to Revelation chapter 14 with me. If you have one of our uh, black CSB Bibles, it's on page uh, 1097. And again, we want to encourage you to take that Bible if you don't have one. Put, the, put God's Word in front of you. We don't put it up on the screen because we want you to be able to see where it's at actually in the book. So whether you have it on your phone or in your hands in a physical copy, that's what we want. I want you looking down in God's Word and not necessarily up at a wall or, or even up at me. I want you to see that God is saying this uh, in, in His Word and then encourage you to take that home and, uh, and keep that. And don't just close it and then bring it back Sunday and open it. Open it up throughout the week and dig in. Test, test the words that you hear out of, my word, um, out of my mouth with the words that you see on the page, okay? And see uh, what God has to say to us this morning. We're going to finish up a section that began in chapter 12 by pulling back the curtain of heaven and revealing this cosmic spiritual war that's been raging since Adam and Eve sided with the serpent and rebelled against God in the garden. So for a long time. And in his grace, though, we know this, we've seen this in Genesis 3, God did not turn his back on his people. Instead, he promised to redeem his people and put hostility between them and the serpent. Last week, we saw... Uh, in chapter 13, how this serpent in the garden is the dragon, or uh, uh, from Revelation 12, excuse me, a couple weeks ago. This is Satan himself, right? And last week in chapter 13, we saw how this, how this cosmic battle manifests itself here on earth through wicked and idolatrous individuals and empires and governments that act like ravenous animals, like beasts, if you will. They've given their allegiance to the dragon and they're empowered by him to rage against God and and God's people. But that rage isn't always like full-on aggressive violence. Oftentimes it's cloaked in a deceptive seduction and allure, making sinful things look right and good. The dragon uses this deception to entice the world into allegiance with him, just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. Go back and read Genesis 3. And you'll see how, how the, the, uh, like, like the playing out in Eve's mind, she saw the fruit and it looked good, seemed good for wisdom, right? It's alluring, it's enticing, but it's deceit. But now through faith in Christ, God's people are sealed by God's spirit and they have God's wisdom. We have God's wisdom to keep us from being fooled by the dragon's schemes. And so the dragon uses his beastly allies to persecute God's people in an attempt to coerce us into spiritual compromise and unfaithfulness to God. This, these are the main themes throughout all of Revelation. Don't give in to the world. Trust Jesus and he will keep you to the end. Like that's the whole summary right there in a short sentence. Don't give in to the world because the world has given in to the dragon. That's why. Give in to Christ. Hold fast to him. Endure in faith because he's holding fast to you. And that's why we see this refrain all throughout the book that calls God's people to endure. We'll see it again this morning. Be faithful to Christ. Resist compromise with the world to the very end. Today in chapter 14, we're going to see that this cosmic spiritual war has an end, but it does not end in a peace treaty with opposing sides, between opposing sides. And there is no neutral third party here. There's a clear winner and there's a clear loser and everyone must pick a side. Everyone. But you need to choose carefully because you 
will live with the consequences of that choice forever. I want to ask the Lord to help us see these choices clearly and then give us the grace we need to choose wisely. Father, we thank you for your word that is enduring, never changing, consistent, and good. We pray this morning that the truth would ring out in our ears, our minds, our hearts to encourage the saints to keep enduring, to warn the rebels to turn from their sin and trust in Christ and to bring us all into a greater dependence upon Jesus and confidence in him for his glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we had a couple Thanksgivings uh, 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 meals over uh, the past few days, and, and at our Thanksgiving, our family Thanksgiving, uh, we, we start to do a, uh, a Christmas uh, gift exchange. We draw names for that, right? There's an app for it now and all those things, but we're sitting there as a family and, and trying to determine, like, all of a sudden you feel this angst. I don't know if you do or not, but I, I start to feel this angst, like, oh man, what do I want for Christmas, right? Like, I got to make all these choices, and I got to put, I got to put at least one or two things down on the, on the list, and it's like, how do I choose? What, is this in the limit of the, of the spending thing? And like, all of these things, right? And then you get on top of that, like, oh, Black Friday's tomorrow. Well, that's when all the deals are, so I got to make my choice today, right? So that they can make the purchase tomorrow and get all of that in. I don't, do you feel that angst? Nobody does. Maybe it's just me. Well, here, listen, this is, this is one of the things that you get to re- be reminded of that I need grace. I need grace as your pastor and as the one who's preaching this word. This is for me this morning just as much as it is for you. I think, though, whether it's Christmas gifts or whatever else, I think we all could figure out that there's, there's a lot of time that we spend being uh, concerned and consumed with choices that don't really matter. Maybe it's not a Christmas gift, but maybe it's something else that, that, that wells that anxiety up in your heart. You feel this pressure to choose. We're going to see this morning, though, that there's only one choice that matters more than anything else, and you have to make it. You have to make it. You cannot pass this on to someone else. So here's the main point. This is the choice. This is the main point of our passage. It's the main point of the sermon. This is the choice that you need to make this morning. Follow the lamb and enter God's rest, or follow the beast and suffer God's wrath. That's it. Follow the lamb and enter God's rest or follow the beast and suffer God's wrath. These are the only two options. There's no, there's no uh, half-off sale that you gotta wait for, right? There, th- this is it. We're gonna see this this morning as John unfolds these visions and describes what he's seeing, visions of three things, the redeemed, the rebels, and the reckoning. Let's look at the redeemed here in chapter 14. Verses one through five. Then I looked, and there was the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name, (coughs) excuse me, had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders But no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. 
they are redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. After John is given the vision of the earthly beasts in chapter 13, now his focus is directed back up to heaven once again, and he's given this vision of, a, of the people that Christ has rescued from the beastly world. But the first thing that he sees is what? Or who? The lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now back in Psalm 2, we went through that psalm maybe a year ago. Uh, it's a messianic psalm, points to the coming Messiah. God laughs in Psalm 2 at the raging nations, and he says, I've installed my king, a.k.a. anointed one, the Messiah, on Zion, my holy mountain. You go to the, the book of Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews calls Mount Zion the city of the living God, and he, he calls it the heavenly Jerusalem. And he says it's the place of festive gathering with myriads of angels and the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven. What we're seeing here in this vision, along with John, is this heavenly reality that awaits all who've put their hope in Christ alone during their earthly lives. We already know from chapter seven that this number, 144,000, it's not literal, but instead it symbolizes the complete number of people from every part of the world across all of history whom God has sealed for himself and redeemed, saved them from his coming wrath and from their sin, rescued them by his grace. Their names have been written in heaven. Why? John tells us here, because the name of the Lamb and of the Father have been written on them. In verse 3, John says that they've been redeemed from the earth. That word redeemed means purchased. This is Redeemer Community Church. You know why we call it that? Because we're people who've been purchased by Christ through his blood. Remember back in chapter 5 when the four living creatures and the elders sang a new song to Jesus about his worthiness to take the scroll and open its seals? They said that Jesus is worthy because he was slaughtered. And why? He purchased, a.k.a. redeemed, people for God by his blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. And he made them a kingdom and priests to God who will reign on the earth. We're, we're simply getting a glimpse of that reality here in these verses. And we'll see it in full in chapter 21 when the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, comes down out of heaven and God makes the earth his dwelling place with his people forever. John tells us more about these redeemed people in verses four and five. He, he, he identifies who they are. He says, these are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remain virgins. Now that's not literal. It's not like if you're not a virgin, you don't get to be redeemed. It's a symbolic way of saying that the redeemed people of God have remained faithful to Christ and have not committed spiritual adultery with the world. This is going to be graphically displayed in uh, uh, chapter 17 that's coming up where Babylon uh, the, the, is, is personified as a woman, a prostitute. And the world gets into sexual immorality with her. And we'll see that a little bit here in a moment. Verse 5 says, no lie was found in their mouths. They're blameless. The devil is the father of lies. We know this from John's gospel. Jesus called him that. And, and these people have no part with the devil. They have no part with the father of lies. No deceit. No lies are found in their mouth. These are people of the truth who hold on to the truth in Jesus and make that truth known to others. John also says these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. 
Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. We know this. This was pictured in John's gospel. It's pictured here in Revelation, but he's also the good shepherd who calls his own sheep by name. And what? He leads them out of the sheep pen and the sheep follow him. Why? Because they know his voice. But it's important to note again what John is saying here. The sheep follow the lamb wherever he goes. Let's just think about Jesus's life for a moment. Where did he go when he was here on the earth? He went to the cross and he went to the tomb. No lie was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Peter says this in 1 Peter. He was blameless, yet he was oppressed and afflicted, led away like a lamb to the slaughter. Isaiah 53, he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. He was punished so that we could have peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. We didn't follow the lamb wherever he went. We followed wherever we wanted to go. But the lamb was punished in our place in order to make us blameless and be, bring us into his sheepfold and be our shepherd. And listen, his sheep do follow him wherever he goes. We follow him wherever he goes. That means that we must be willing to follow him in suffering and even death in our earthly lives. He said it himself in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 38. He says it in some of the other gospels as well. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, we could insert wherever I go, right? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? We could insert soul there for life. And what can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, listen, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. These are strong words from a strong king. To gain the whole world is to commit spiritual adultery with the dragon and his beasts. But the people who follow the lamb wherever he goes, we know that this earthly life is not the ultimate life to hold on to. We've been given eternal life by the lamb who was slain and rose from the grave. Jesus came and he gave his life he didn't live for himself. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If we're to follow in his footsteps wherever he goes, that means that our life is not our own. We don't live for ourselves. We live for the one who died and was raised for us. We know that even if this world causes us to fall by the sword, if that's the case, guess what? We will stand on Mount Zion with our King the lamb. If you follow Jesus, listen to me. If you follow Jesus, you need to know that what John is seeing here, this vision, you're in it. Do you know that? You are in this. This is a picture of what's coming. You are part of that, counted among those, those redeemed people. You get to sing the song. You get to stand with Christ on Mount Zion. 
This reality ought to spur you on to keep following the lamb wherever he leads you in this life, even if that gets harder and harder to do. Even if that means losing your livelihood or your security, your comfort, your freedom, your relationships, or even your life for the sake of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. Why? Because you love the eternal lamb more than you love this earthly life. And like your shepherd, you've entrusted yourself to the one who judges justly. We walk as Jesus walked. We live in the truth because Jesus himself is the truth. Look at what the redeemed are doing in this vision. They're worshiping the one who redeemed them. In chapter 5, it was the four living creatures and the elders who sang about Christ purchasing uh, people for God. Here, it's the people whom Christ has purchased that erupt in praise. And listen, nobody else can learn the song except for the redeemed people of God. Did you catch that? Nobody can learn it except for them. Church, listen, we have our own song to sing about our Redeemer. That doesn't mean that it's a secret song that nobody else knows the words to. Here's what it means. It means that we can sing it in a way that nobody else can, whether they are perfect heavenly beings who have no need to be redeemed or they're sinful human beings who have a great need to be redeemed and yet continue to live in rebellion against the God who judges justly but also forgives graciously. We started our time together this morning by singing songs that are focused on our Redeemer and the truth of his gospel. Listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you may have sung those words out of your mouth, but you are unable to sing those words from your heart. Why? Because you don't know their truth and their power. You can't. You can't know that. Not yet. You might be able to learn the words to the song, but you haven't yet learned the bitterness of your sin and the sweetness of God's grace in Jesus Christ. You can't truly know the song of the redeemed until you have been redeemed. Oh, but please don't miss the grace that God is revealing to you this morning because you can learn that song today. You can trust your, entrust yourself to the redeemer and, 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 and learn this song, not just with your mouth, but with your heart. So why not confess with your mouth? Why not confess your sin and your need for Jesus right now? Don't don't wait till the end of the sermon. Don't wait till we sing the last song. Why not confess and seek forgiveness that can only be granted through Christ and his sacrifice on the cross? But maybe you're sitting in here and you you don't think your sin is that bad or, or you don't think it's sin at all. Maybe you don't even, or you don't think that you need to be given, uh, forgiven. Maybe you think that, that you're, or you like living your life the way you want and you actually are dismissing God as the one who needs to change. If there really is a God. I don't know how, how far you go into that thinking. But if that's you, if you're here and, you're, and you have not put your trust in Christ, then I beg you, don't tune out this next section here, this next vision, because it'll show you that you can't actually live your life the way you want. That's a pipe dream. You think you're living for you, but you're always living for someone else. In your resistance against God, you've actually surrendered to the control of another. If the verses that we just read serve to encourage the redeemed, then this next set of verses serve to warn the rebels. Look at verse six and seven. Then I saw another angel flying overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to to every nation, tribe, language, and people, 
He spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made the heaven and made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This angel is announcing the eternal gospel. The word gospel in the Greek here literally means good news. Now, when we think of the good news of the gospel, we, we usually d- default to this news of salvation, and that's true, right? But we don't tend to, to like pull in this news of judgment that's coming. But this is the eternal gospel. What does that mean? That means it's unchanging. That means it's permanent. Nothing's added to it. Nothing's taken away from it. That means that judgment has always been a reality of this gospel just as much as salvation has. If you do a survey through all of scripture and you see God saving people, he's always saving them through judgment of others. From that very first promise in the garden in chapter three, I'll put hostility between you and the woman. Your seed and her seed. You will crush his head or his heel, but he will crush your head. You'll be judged and she'll be saved. To whom is this angel announcing this eternal gospel? Verse six, to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Now, chapter five makes it clear that Jesus purchased people from every tribe, language, people, and nation with his own blood. But last week in chapter 13, we saw that the beast was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. And those who live on the earth, that's a phrase that that keeps repeating itself over and over in Revelation. They're compelled to worship the beast. Throughout this book, The phrase, those who live on the earth, and lump this one in here, uh, the inhabitants of the earth, saying the same thing, it without fail points to unbelievers. Those who are in rebellion against God and who have not put their trust in Christ. This angel is announcing the eternal gospel to people who are worshiping not God, but rebelling against God, worshiping the beast This announcement is a warning to all unbelievers, including those who call themselves Christians, but really aren't. They're lying. Deceit is in their mouth. And what's the warning? Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. Why? Because God's judgment is certain against the rebellious and unbelieving world that worships creation instead of the creator. Go read Romans 1. It says it again. This is all over scripture. God alone is worthy of worship. The certainty of God's judgment is good news for the redeemed because it guarantees justice for the afflicted, the oppressed, the persecuted, the martyred, and it proves that God is truly righteous in all his ways. Romans 3 unpacks that for us. If you've ever been victimized by someone else, you know, you understand how it is good news that they are brought to justice for what they've done by a judge who does what is right. The reality, though, that you might be less eager to embrace is that if you worship the creation instead of the creator, you are not the victim in that case. You're the offender. And the one you've offended is the righteous judge himself. And that means that you are the unrighteous one who needs to be brought to justice for what you've done. And that would be good and right. 
You may not have literal statues of idols, but to worship the creation. Listen, this is what it means. To, it, that is to suppress God's truth by believing the world's lies. And it is to give your affection and your allegiance to something or to someone other than God. God alone is worthy of our worship. And verse 8 tells us who you give your affection and allegiance to. And another, a second angel followed saying, it has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. Now in chapter 13, we saw that the beasts were symbols of the idolatrous nations that set themselves up in opposition to God. Here, those beastly nations are called by a symbolic name, Babylon the Great. If you remember when we went through the book of Genesis way back when, uh, you might recall a man by the name of Nimrod back in Genesis chapter 10. His name actually means rebel. And he was a powerful man whose kingdom started with Babylon and then uh, grew from there. And then right in the very next chapter, Genesis 11, the inhabitants of the earth came together to make a name for themselves and they built a tower that went all the way up, or they were trying to build a tower in a city. And that tower, their goal was to make it all the way up into the sky. What were they trying to do? Dethrone the Lord, right? You know what the tower is called? Babel. That's the Hebrew word for Babylon. That's the city that that tower was in. Babylon also was the nation later in the Old Testament that that came and destroyed God's temple in Jerusalem and exiled the people of Judah, took them into captivity. We've seen how much John alludes to the book of Daniel here in Revelation. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, said, Is this not Babylon the great? that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power for my majestic glory. Now the literal Babylon from the Old Testament has now come to epitomize what it looks like to live in rebellion against God. Every nation, hear me, every nation that sets itself up in opposition to God and seeks to glorify itself becomes Babylon the Great. To the 12 churches that John was originally writing to, Babylon the Great was Rome. Rome sought to glorify itself through its military and economic power. Now when we think of it in those terms, suddenly Babylon the Great doesn't seem so far away from us in history or geography, does it? In fact, it quickly becomes apparent that no matter where we look on the map or in the history books, we'll find Babylon. Why? Because as John puts it here in verse 8, she made all the nations, all of them, all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality. And again, that sexual immorality is, it's, it's a symbolism. It certainly includes sexual immorality literally, but it's a symbol for spiritual adultery and idolatry. You see, when a society deceives or forces people to conform to its idolatrous demands, that society is making those people drink Babylon's wine. And once people start drinking it, they become intoxicated by the seductive taste of power and influence and wealth. And in their drunkenness, then they commit spiritual adultery. You see, their drunkenness, their spiritual drunkenness, blurs their vision and keeps them from seeing the true nature of Babylon and the true nature of Christ himself of God himself, and it numbs their senses to the very real danger that they're in. 
Now listen, as those who have been redeemed by Christ, we have been forgiven of our drunken rebelliousness, of our spiritual adultery, and we have been sobered up by the grace of God. But we continue to live in a world that can't get enough of Babylon's wine. And she's all too happy to keep pouring. And listen, she knows just how to pair that wine with every culture. In our culture, it's a smooth, full-bodied wine with a sweet bouquet of personal autonomy and self-expression. It has rich undertones of worldly comfort, holistic health, self-indulgent luxury, and endless entertainment. This time of the year, it really brings out those consumeristic notes of Black Friday and Cyber Monday, right? And this wine finishes with subtle hints of widespread influence and economic security. Listen, don't be fooled by the taste. Don't be fooled by the taste because in the end, this wine always ends up bitter. Why? Because it always brings wrath. Always on those who drink it. Look at verses nine through 11. And another, a third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and the sight of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. Now, there's a principle at play here that's been established since the beginning of the Bible. It's called retributive justice. Retributive justice. You might recognize it as an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. There's a whole list of those in Exodus chapter 21. And the principle is that the punishment must always fit the crime. That's what retributive justice is. The wrongdoer must repay as much as, but no more than, the wrong that they have done. And so the description of God's wrath here ought to tell us something about the nature of the wrongdoing. Did you catch that? The wrath actually shows us how bad the sin is, the wickedness is. To worship the beast and to receive his mark is to give your affection and your allegiance to wickedness and to devote your thoughts and your actions, your forehead, your hands, right? John talked about that last week. To devote your thoughts and actions to spiritual idolatry and adultery. Now, it can be tempting for us to read this and think that this punishment seems uh, pretty harsh. It's harsh, right? It really is. But when we do that, we're forgetting that God is the righteous judge of the universe who always judges justly and always takes sin seriously. That means that the punishment that he carries out never fails to fit the crime. Always as much as and never more than what the crime that has been committed is warranted to receive. See, all sin is sin against God, which makes all sin eternally heinous. Why? Because God is eternally righteous. If the sin is heinous, then this judgment is not harsh. The punishment fits the crime. Those who never stop drinking the wine of Babylon's sexual immorality in this life will never stop drinking the wine of God's wrath in the life to come. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Retributive justice. 
If you're not a follower of Christ, I pray that these words of warning will will pierce your heart this morning and bring you to repentance. Because if you continue to reject Jesus until you physically die or he physically returns, you will be tormented by God's rejection of you forever. Forever and ever. Like those are literal words. That's not symbolic there. It's forever. Without end. There is no rest. Only torment. Your punishment will fit your crime. If you are a follower of Christ, then John has some more words for you here in verses 12 and 13. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. The ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes are the saints who keep God's commands and keep their faith in Jesus. This is what John just, he spells it out for us here. And the certainty of Babylon's fall calls for endurance from the saints, excuse me, because we know that in the end, we will not, what we will receive is not retribution, but eternal reward. The spirit who has sealed us for the day of redemption says so right here. Blessed are all who die in the Lord from now on. All who remain faithful till death, no matter when or how you die, you're blessed. Why? Because you've spent your life living for Christ and Christ has given his life for you. A day will come when we will rest from the labor of endurance. Oh, isn't that good news? And we will receive our reward because we've already rested, already rested in the finished work of redemption that Christ has provided for us through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. No rest for the wicked. No rest. Forever rest for the redeemed. We need to make something very clear here, though, because the language here we can, we can misconstrue. We don't follow our works to heaven. We follow Christ to heaven. And our works follow us. These works are, are the product of our salvation, not the cause of it. Jesus is the cause of our salvation. And listen, Jesus is our greatest reward. He's our greatest reward to see our king face to face. We sang about it this morning. So brothers and sisters, listen, keep God's commands and keep your faith in Jesus. Keep sharing the gospel, the eternal gospel, the whole gospel with your unsaved friends and family and coworkers and classmates and keep pointing them to Jesus as their only hope. Keep warning them of what will happen if they reject Jesus and choose Babylon. Keep enduring by the power of the Holy Spirit who keeps you sealed for the day of redemption because that day will surely come. It will surely come. You see, every human being in the history of the world will be physically raised to exist eternally, either in a real place of conscious torment under God's holy wrath or in a real place of everlasting peace, comfort, and joy in God's holy love and grace. That's it. Those are the only two options. There's no third choice. No redos, no second chances. That's why Jesus came the first time. That's why we celebrate the advent of Christ around Christmas because he came to save, to redeem. 
God's wrath was poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and his one and only son willingly drank that cup to the last drop as he hung on the cross to pay the sin debt of all who put their trust in him. If you put your hope in Jesus, there's no more cup of eternal wrath waiting for you. Instead, you get a seat at the table of the great wedding feast to come where you will get to drink the, 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 the cup of eternal blessing, not just as a wedding guest, but listen, as the bride, the bride of Christ. If you entrust yourself to Jesus, he takes your retribution and you get his reward. So why not put your hope in Christ right now? There's no guarantee that you'll have another opportunity to do so. There's no guarantee that we'll finish this time together this morning. Stop drinking the wine of sexual immorality with Babylon and start drinking the wine of the new covenant with Christ. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. There's no time to wait because a day is coming when the redeemed will experience rest and the rebels will experience the reckoning. This is our last section, verses 14 through 20. Then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and one like the Son of Man was seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, crying in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the harvest, the time to reap has come, since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Then another angel who also had a sharp sickle came out of the temple in heaven. Yet another angel who had authority over fire, which is judgment in the book of Revelation, came from the altar and he called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle, use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. And then the press was trampled outside the city. And the blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. That's 1,600 stadia. As we've already seen several times in the book of Revelation, once again, we come to another depiction of the final judgment at the end of history. And this time it's symbolized as a harvest. Some people think that, the, that verses 14 through 16 are rever, uh, referring to the harvest of believers, and then 17 through 20 are talking about the harvest of unbelievers. But this language used here in, in this whole section is a very close echo, uh, echo excuse me, of Joel chapter 3. Listen to Joel 3, 12 and 13. Let the nations be roused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit down to judge all the surrounding nations. Swing the sickle, because the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes because the wine press is full. The wine vats overflow because of the wickedness, because the wickedness of the nations is extreme. Now the harvest in Joel, is, it points to God's judgment on the nations, the wicked nations. And the connection to Joel here in these two harvest scenes seem to make them both about judgment as well. That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't harvest the righteous. But I think what's happening here is uh, be, because of how much repetition is used in the book of Revelation, this is probably two depictions of the same judgment in order to emphasize the certainty and the severity of it. Verse 15 speaks to the certainty of God's judgment. Right now, we say that it's coming, right? 
It's a warning. There will be a day, though, when the time to reap has come. It's here because the harvest is ripe. Verse 18 affirms this reality when it says the grapes have ripened. There's no more ripening to do. Verses 19 through 20 speak to the severity of God's judgment. All the grapes, a.k.a. unbelievers, will be thrown into the great winepress of God's wrath and they'll be trampled and the wine vats will overflow like they've never overflown. Joel's vision has, has, doesn't hold a candle to this one in terms of the, the blood that flows out. But listen, God will only be carrying out retributive justice. His wrath will be extreme because the wickedness of the nations is extreme. The punishment will fit the crime. That should tell us something about the wickedness But look at where the wine press is trampled. Did you notice that? Outside the city. What city is he talking about? Well, we saw that city in verse one. It's Mount Zion where the redeemed are standing safely and victoriously with the lamb, singing a song of praise to the one who saved them from God's wrath. Church, listen, we have not just been saved from our sin. We've also been saved from the reckoning that's coming because of sin. That is gloriously good news. Gloriously good news. Our blood won't flow out of the wine press because Jesus' blood flowed at the cross when he took our sin upon himself and he suffered the wrath of God in our place. Our judgment day happened 2,000 years ago. That is gloriously good news. But God has placed people in your life who need to know that this wrath is coming on every rebel. God's placed people in your life that need to know that the only way to escape this wrath that's coming and will come is to run to the Redeemer himself. And what a glorious Redeemer he is. Will you warn them about this coming judgment? Will you point them to this beautiful Redeemer, this Lamb? The eternal gospel includes both of those things. Once again, one more time, if you're not a follower of Jesus, please hear these words. Let these be a plea to you. I stand up here as one who is, uh, would be condemned apart from Christ, not as one who condemns others. I'm guilty. Christ has made me blameless. Don't continue in rebellion against God. That is not a battle you will win. His wrath is good and necessary because he is righteous and just. But listen to me. He offers pardon to sinners. Pardon from his judgment because he's gracious and merciful. But that pardon only comes through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And that pardon is only offered for a limited time. It's only offered now while you're still breathing. When you die or when Christ returns, that offer's off the table. So put your faith in Jesus now. Follow the lamb and enter God's rest or follow the beast and suffer God's wrath. Those are the only two options. That's it. That's it. 
Babylon's wine isn't served in Zion. Which will you choose? You can't be redeemed and be a rebel at the same time. Who will you be? It's one or the other. Please choose the lamb. Choose the lamb. Follow Christ wherever he goes. Because if you follow him in death, giving up your life, entrusting it to him, you'll also follow him in life forever. Standing on Mount Zion, singing the song of the redeemed in glory. Why would you want to be trampled in the wine press when you can stand on the mountain and sing? Father, help us. Lord, help us endure to the very end. We cannot do it apart from Christ, apart from your spirit, apart from your word, apart from your church. You've given us everything we need to make it to the end. And I pray this morning that those who are trying to do it on their own would see the futility of that, would wake from their drunkenness and be sobered by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And Father, for us who have been sobered by that grace, would you remind us again and again of what we have been rescued from so that we never take it for granted and it compels us to share this good news with those around us who are still perishing. We might flee to the Redeemer together and be saved. We thank you and we praise you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.